I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The following program contains adult content, explicit language, and sexual themes. Listener discretion is advised. And it contains murder. Lots and lots of murder. You stinking bastard. People tell me, hey, you're going to go down and go to hell. I guess I'm not blown. Down for 911, where's your emergency? Oh, this is Sandy. We're pretty one look. Talk to the road. What's the problem? Send the police. Send the police. One in the chest, one in the head. Fired by Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson. I was uh, branching out. That's when the cannibalism started, eating the heart and uh, the arm muscle. Oh, oh we're now Carl Williams. He's still coming down with this and just pulled it out of his backside. Carl Williams is a wobbly bottom little cherub, cherub face, cherub face little boy who would, who, who would, who, who, whose life would be. I harm someone each time. Kill someone to be an enormous amount, uh, especially at first. Uh, enormous amount of uh, horror, guilt, remorse afterwards. But then that impulse to do it again would come back even stronger. Emma Ledoux was in a bigamous pickle. She had one too many husbands. How would she avail herself out of this too many dicks on the dance floor problemo? Let's just say her solution involved a large trunk, a hell of a lot of morphine and one enormous flowered hat. In the late 1990s, Anthony Pignataro was a big shot plastic surgeon in New York. He drove around Buffalo in his red Lamborghini and gained international fame for inventing a snap-on hairpiece that connected to the bolts he drilled into the skulls of bald men. Now that all changed in 1997, when Pignataro's long history of medical malpractice came to light after the death of a patient, and soon afterwards his wife Debbie was struck down by a mysterious illness. Hi, I'm Barney Black. And I'm Tara Saraban. And this is Bloody Murder. We're a comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser-known crime stories from Australia. And indeed around the globe. Now, before we commence our sordid tales, we'd like to remind you that this episode is brought to you by our wonderful and generous patrons. Uh, if you'd like to become a patron, go to our website for details. That's bloodymurderpodcast.com. Patrons have access to dozens of other episodes, including our awesome early stuff. (laughs) By awesome, do you mean... um, uh... Almost unlistenable. (laughs) (laughs) I was trying to think of a nice way to say rough. Well, you know, we got better. Let's just say that. I fucking hope so after this long. And levels above $5 receive free stickers and handmade Barney badges. All right, Tara, let's get murdery. Deborah Rago was raised in a close-knit, working-class Italian family in Erie County, New York. Debbie was brought up to believe that family came first and marriages should be worked on. In July 1978, 20-year-old Debbie Rago met Tony Pignataro. He was a good-looking guy from a wealthy family and Debbie fell hard. 
Tony was a student at Lehigh Uni in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. His dad, Ralph, was a well-respected and successful surgeon, and the family had a very comfortable existence in West Seneca, New York. All the children went to expensive private schools, and Ralph wanted Tony to follow him into the medical profession. Tony was a very self-confident young man who had wanted for nothing in his life. Some of Debbie's friends didn't want to be around him as they found his arrogance off-putting, but Debbie thought his self-assuredness was just the product of his intelligence. When Tony decided to follow in his father's footsteps and become a surgeon, he thought he'd have his pick of the top universities offering him positions, but due to his terrible grades, none of them accepted him. Um, The only place Tony could get into was a non-accredited school of medicine in Puerto Rico, where all the courses were in Spanish, which he didn't speak. Oh, no, momento, por favor. (laughs) Yeah. Tony viewed himself as a modern-day Galileo, always thinking up brilliant ideas that he believed would one day make him famous. Electric socks. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Edible toilet paper. Tony's high self-regard made him unconcerned about his less-than-top-shelf education. After graduation, he grew a sweet moustache that he felt would look good on him as a doctor. Debbie and Tony were in a long-distance relationship for eight years, and being old school with strict Italian parents, they didn't live together before marriage and had always actually lived in different states or countries. After the two were married on June 15, 1985, it was a bit of a rude shock for Debbie to see what he was really like on a daily basis. At dinner on their honeymoon cruise, Debbie said, There was a Jewish couple at our table, and he made awful remarks and jokes about Jews. It was so out of line that the couple actually moved to another table. Debbie was mortified. When she tried to talk to Tony about it, he just shrugged it off. Meh. Meh. I'm amazing. I can do what I want. Debbie was one of those I'll be the wind beneath your wings kind of wives. She was always willing to move wherever Tony's career took them and put her own goals on the back burner in support of him. So the Pignataros moved to Baltimore, where Tony started his internship at St Agnes Hospital. Debbie worked as a medical assistant to support him and to slowly save up for a house. In early 1986, Debbie was elated to find out she was pregnant, but Joy turned to grief when she had a miscarriage. The couple kept trying and she became pregnant again a few months later. For all her traditional values, Debbie had more strength than anyone, even herself, realised. When she was eight months pregnant, a man broke into the house when Debbie was alone sleeping. She managed to hold him at gunpoint until the cops came, and it took three of them to get him out the door. Mm, Debbie's a bit kick-ass. Yeah, like she's got like a little her. bit of kick-ass in her. She's very traditional, but, you know, she's got, she's got some feistiness in mm. there somewhere. Mm. On April 4th, 1987, Debbie gave birth to a healthy baby boy they named Raphael. Oh, uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle, obviously inspired by... Sure. That was a sentence. <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of a yodery sentence, but yeah. I'll take it. Around this time, there started being a lot of phone calls to their house that would hang up when Debbie answered. One time a woman rang and told her that she had a message for Tony. Just tell him, hello. Mm. Hello? Hey, Does, baby. <laughs> Does hello? F- hey, baby. Are you done yet? Hello? Hey, baby. (laughs) What about now? Hello? Okay, that's enough. Hey, baby. Despite the evidence, Debbie didn't consider that Tony was cheating on her. She just thought that the woman must have a crush on her handsome husband. 
After two years as an intern at St Agnes, the hospital decided not to renew Tony's internship due to his arrogant attitude, inability to work as part of a team and laziness. The night before they left Baltimore, Debbie answered the phone and a woman said, go look in the back seat of your car. When Debbie did so, she found a cassette tape and a letter. The tape was of Tony talking to another woman and the letter went into great details about their affair. Debbie was angry and hurt. She wanted to leave Tony and take the baby with her. When Debbie spoke to her father, he talked her out of leaving Tony, bestowing the virtues of forgiveness, and he ended the call by saying, now hang up and go make your marriage work. Tony seemed to be repentant about the affair, saying that he couldn't bear to lose Debbie and baby Ralph. He made a lot of excuses to minimise what he'd done and said that the other woman was crazy. Ugh. Yeah, women are always crazy, right? Yeah. Probably was a little bit to have an affair with Tony. Yeah. But, you know, he was handsome. Apparently. Debbie had recently discovered that she was pregnant again, so she wanted to believe Tony and, well, she convinced herself that she could. They moved back to Buffalo where Tony had gained admittance to another internship. Here he misdiagnosed a patient who ended up dying. Tony was charged in a wrongful death suit, but as was always the case, he didn't think he'd done anything wrong. After all, everyone makes mistakes. Unluckily for his future patients, the suit was dropped. When their daughter Christina was born, Debbie was devastated to learn that her head was misshapen and large as she had a brain tumour that had been growing for months unbeknownst to anyone. Christina had no significant brain function and couldn't breathe without life support. Figuring that was no kind of life to have, they took her off life support and she died. That's awful. Yeah, mm. yeah, seriously. Next, the Pignataros moved to Washington in 1988 so Tony could do another residency. Around this time, he became very critical of Debbie's appearance, saying that she wasn't thin enough or pretty enough. She said, he would ask me, have you looked at yourself in the mirror? Do you think I want to be with someone who looks like that? Oh, he definitely puts the pig in Pigmentaro or whatever his name is. Pignataro, yeah. When no. I was taking notes for this, I just called him Pig <laughs> and it seemed to suit. I kind of um, felt bad when I well, had to change kind, it to Tony. It's kind of insulting to pigs. Yeah, actually, it's very insulting to pigs. I what like, did they do? I know. I like their curly tails. Yeah, they're nice. They're yummy too. Being criticised so harshly while mourning the loss of her daughter and moving to a city where she didn't know anyone was a massive blow to Debbie's self-confidence. Tony left the Georgetown Hospital because they didn't appreciate his genius and also his massive head wouldn't fit through the door anymore. Guess where he worked next, Barney? Was it in a factory testing oversized pillows with his ginormous head? No. Next, the family moved to Philadelphia while Tony worked on his next internship at Thomas Jefferson Hospital. But despite describing himself as gregarious, personable and a man who worked well with others, his colleagues didn't appreciate his genius there either. He said they were just jealous. Socially, Tony continued to hurt people's feelings with his jokes. When Debbie called him on it, he told her she had no sense of humour. Don't you hate that? Someone's just an absolute ass to you and then you call them on it and they go, I was just joking. Yeah, no, my sense of humour is just fine. What you just said was not funny. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, he's been eating away at her for a while now. After giving birth to a healthy baby girl named Lauren, Tony was on Debbie's case again about being too fat. 
Tony was a gym junkie who stayed in shape and said that she should too. He also regularly told Debbie that she was too dumb because I guess that's what geniuses who can't finish residencies do, huh? Mm. Hang on a second. Their kids are called Ralph Lauren? Yes, Ralph and Lauren. Okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> they actually had a dog called Polo at one point as well, just oh, as a wow. joke on that. Yeah. Debbie got a job as a medical assistant for a plastic surgeon. Concerned about her looks due to Tony's constant criticism, she decided to have a nose job. She and Tony were happy with the results, and so he decided to have a nose job too. Tony spent a hell of a lot of time thinking about his appearance, and he was particularly unhappy about losing his hair. Tony's 1991 evaluation at Thomas Jefferson Hospital was so scathing that he wasn't allowed to do a second year there. Hospital staff considered him a danger to patients due to his lack of medical knowledge, inability to acknowledge mistakes and his conniving manner. But Tony didn't care. He was over being a resident and thought he knew it all already. By this point, he was an MD who couldn't get hospital privileges. But don't worry, Barney. None of it messed with his self-confidence or narcissism, and he was still the rude, arrogant bastard he always was. Well, I was worried there for a while. Thank you. No, I thought I should reassure you before yeah, you, you started crying. The Pignataros moved back to Buffalo, where Tony planned to pursue his own genius ideas and lie about his qualifications to get work. Not liking to play well with others, Tony was adamant about having his own private practice. He decided to have his own operating room too, so he could sidestep that whole pesky business of needing hospital privileges to operate on people. Despite his lack of qualifications, Tony wanted to be a plastic surgeon, as he believed it was the perfect match for his intellect and artistry. He put up fake qualifications on his office walls, which said that he was a board-certified plastic surgeon to placate his patients. So if you take anything away from this story, Barney, I hope it's to make sure you check the qualifications of anyone you allow to do surgery on you outside of a hospital environment. I wish you'd told me that a couple of years ago. Yeah. What will I do with these oversized ball implants? Ah, uh, what have you been doing with them the past couple of years? <laughs> well, putting him in a wheelbarrow. Yeah, okay. Well, I guess you're going to have to keep doing that, aren't you? Being a vain man who had been beleaguered by baldness since his early 20s, Tony tried to come up with a perfect solution to the problem. He tried comb-overs, glue-on toupees and weaves. He figured there would be a market for expensive hair pieces that wouldn't blow off or slip out of place. He figured it could work to have bolts inserted into the human skull so the hairpiece could snap onto them. Unsure who to test his invention on, he decided to be his own guinea pig. So he got his father, who was a surgeon, to drill four holes in his skull. After three and a half months of healing, implants were integrated into the surrounding bone and then the centre screw was removed and a protruding bolt with a socket remained just under the skin. The other portion of the attachment was fastened to a custom-made skull cap covered with hair, which then easily snapped into the socket of the bolt. Tony was elated. His fake hair stayed on even in the firmest of breezes. Ingenious. You know, I have a better idea. Why don't replace all of the top of your head with Velcro? Yeah, yeah. And then you could just Velcro your wig on. And even when you didn't have your wig on, you'd look like you had a, like a number two on your head because it's Velcro. Okay. Yeah, wow. You're a modern-day Galileo, aren't you, buddy? I really am. In 1994, Tony was sued by a patient after a botched facelift. He blamed her and said she didn't follow his post-operative instructions. 
um, but that wasn't true. And he ended up paying $75,000 to settle the case. Don't use your face for three weeks. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But you know what she did? She She breathed through her nose. She she spoke. She breathed through her nose as well. And that's probably what ruined it. Blinked. Mm -hmm. Wiggled her ears. If only she'd followed those instructions. So Tony figured that all men wanted to have full heads of hair and all women wanted big, perky boobs. So these were the areas that he focused on in his business. He advertised his services in all manner of publications, claiming that he was a board-certified plastic surgeon. After the botched facelift, Tony was investigated by the Department of Health and told, you'd better stop these plastic surgery procedures in your office before you kill someone. Good advice. But did he? He did. No. No, he didn't. No. Stop. He didn't kill someone. Oh, yeah. But as always, Tony knew best. Nothing was ever his fault. He was a genius. And besides, all doctors made mistakes. The fact he didn't feel bad about causing pain or disfigurement to his patients meant he wasn't worried about it happening again. Over the next few years, he was regularly investigated and sued. He lied and forged documents to win the cases and nothing ever stuck to him. He was a Teflon asshole. That's the name of my fourth album, Teflon <laughs> Asshole. Everything's the name of your fourth album. The Associated Press picked up an article that had been written about Tony and his snap-on toupee and that went international. So men came flocking to him to get the procedure done. He was also working on plans for a bra that went under the skin, as he figured that not all women needed implants, some boobs just needed to be less saggy. <laughs> now, this is actually a terrible idea, by the way. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, the first... <laughs> so well, I know, you're, in, I know really? you're into it, right? Tell me why, Tara, <laughs> this is a terrible idea. It seems great to yeah, me. Yeah, I know. Who wouldn't want the underwires oh. on the inside? The first thing most women do when they get home is they take off their bras. So imagine having one on under your skin that you could never take off. Oh, hell no! Right, so back to the electric socks? Yeah, yeah. No. Back to the, what was it? The, the ice dildo or whatever? Oh, sorry, no, that's just my own thing. That's my own invention. Around this time, a heavily tattooed exotic dancer named Moira came to see Tony for a boob job. He loved working on her breasts so much that he wanted to keep doing so, but from outside her skin. Oh. He bought her many gifts and worked on seducing her. Entering full midlife crisis mode, he bought himself a red Lamborghini and totally obsessed with his appearance, he decided to get himself some cheek implants. He spent pretty much no time with Debbie or his kids and he said he was always working so he could afford to send them both to exclusive private schools. Didn't mention the whole exotic dancer boob thing. No. In 1996, Tony went to Puerto Rico to establish a hair replacement clinic. He took Moira and her two boobs with him. Debbie found out and she threatened to leave him, so he assured her that it would never happen again. He paid attention to her and bought her flowers and gifts like he always did. As a woman whose main goals in life were to be a good mother and have a happy marriage, Debbie did what she thought was right and forgave him. The frugal fake doctor didn't like spending money on his basement operating room, so he cut costs by not employing enough people to safely operate it solutions. He only employed a secretary, a practical nurse and his wife Debbie who was a medical assistant. He told her he was so skilled and gifted it wouldn't matter that she didn't have training. Tony also did not see the need for an anesthesiologist. 
He thought their fees were ridiculous and they couldn't do anything that he couldn't do. So instead of anaesthetic, he gave his patients sedative pills and sodium pentothal. Debbie was unaware of any lawsuits or patients who had died and she thought that her husband was a good doctor. Like she was in the dark about all of this. A woman named Connie came to Tony for liposuction, but he convinced her that she needed abdominoplasty, which is a much more expensive service. And of course, he botched the job, leaving Connie bleeding like a stuck pig from the gaping wound in her abdomen. Yeah. Yeah, she couldn't even walk or sit. Her worried husband called Tony, but he said that that was normal. It was just fluid that was draining. He said they should get some like maxi pads and just stick them to her wounds. That's called doctoring. Connie found herself in excruciating pain when the sedatives wore off and she hadn't been prescribed any follow-up medication because Tony usually just kept those pills for his own use. What kind of noise does a duck make, Tara? No, it goes quack. And that's exactly (laughs) what this guy is. He certainly is. Connie went back to see Dr. Pignataro, but he acted like it was fine and said that he'd get his assistant, who was not qualified and had never done the procedure before, to staple her up next week. Ugh. Uh, yes. No, that's not no. going to work. I was like, oh, can you just staple her up next week? I'm going to be golfing or some shit. And the assistant's like, I haven't done that. And he's like, oh, it's, it's easy. There's, uh, there's instructions on the stapler. You just staple it. Like, yeah, you've used a stapler, haven't you? Yeah, Come on. everybody has. After this life-threatening ridiculousness, Connie's husband insisted on taking her to the ER, where she was found to have a grossly distended stomach and a sky-high temperature. Tony visited her in the hospital and asked her, what happened? Like she'd done something? He looked at her chart, told her there was nothing wrong with her and tried to get her to leave. He even attempted to sign her out of the hospital himself, twice, and this got him kicked out of the hospital. Twice. (laughs) Connie had to stay in hospital for over a week on strong antibiotics to fight the infection. And she had so much scarring from the surgery that, well, she certainly never bought another bikini again. Her doctor called Tony and told him that he shouldn't be practicing surgery as he was hurting people. Tony let this bounce off his Teflon asshole, refusing to even entertain the thought that he'd done anything wrong. He also took to taking painkillers that Debbie needed after an accident that had damaged her neck and washed them down with oodles of tequila. Oodles, hey? Mm Mm-hmm. Is that the collective noun for tequila? I believe it is. Yeah, completely. Mm. Just ask the worm. Unhappy about the scars left by boob jobs, Tony was interested in a new technique called tuba, which stood for trans-umbilical breast augmentation. Hey, baby, can I tuba your dirty pillows? That's exactly how it goes. Um, So it involved tunnelling from the belly button to the armpit area next to the breast. And so any scars would be around the belly button and they were supposed to just fade away. Now, Tony being Tony, he didn't want to take a whole week to learn how to do the operation properly. So he just did a weekend course where he observed someone else doing it. I watched some YouTube videos. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. 26-year-old Sarah Smith came to Dr. Pignataro for breast augmentation as her friend had had a successful boob job from him. Um, Her surgery was scheduled for 9.30am on August 25th, 1997. Her husband Dan drove her, bringing a book with him so he could wait while she was in surgery. But Tony convinced him to go run errands as the procedure would take hours. Debbie assisted in the operation, as did an unregistered nurse. 
When Dan came back at 2.30pm, he was whisked into the office where Debbie told him that Sarah had stopped breathing during surgery, but that she was breathing now in an ambulance on the way to hospital. It wasn't until he was at the hospital and a priest and a nun came to speak to him that Dan realised how serious Sarah's condition was. They led him to the intensive care unit where Sarah was lying in a coma with many tubes in her body. She'd flatlined. A respirator breathed for her and a nurse said to Dan, get a lawyer, get a good one. This guy has put five people in hospital in the last few weeks. Wow. In the hospital, Tony put the blame on Sarah saying, I don't know what happened. Was she taking anything? Dan said that she wasn't. Whatever had happened to Sarah, Tony wanted everyone to know that he wasn't responsible. The days wore on and Sarah didn't wake up. Dan spent all his time at the hospital, unable to comprehend that Sarah might not come out of the coma. Doctors told Dan that Sarah wasn't coming back to him, and even if she lived, she'd be in a vegetative state. Dan couldn't accept it. The doctors were advising him to let her die, but Dan held on. Sarah and Dan got married in 1990 and had a son named Nathan and a daughter named Amanda. Sarah worked as a courier for a law firm. She wanted to be a paralegal one day as she was fascinated by the law. Sarah had always wanted bigger breasts. She was very beautiful as she was, so nobody understood her feelings of disappointment and inadequacy with her looks. On September 1st, 1997, after a lot of soul-searching and discussions with Sarah's parents, Dan finally agreed to having Sarah taken off the respirator, and she died. Tony went back to business as usual, saying, Well, that could happen to anyone. Or anyone he operated on. Well, yeah, most people. He even did more tuba operations. In fact, he did as many operations as possible in the hopes of getting all the money he could as he feared that he may soon no longer be allowed to practice medicine. Although there'd been many ongoing investigations into him by the New York State Department of Health, after Sarah Smith's death, the Erie County DA's office was drawn in. They put two seasoned investigators on the case. They discovered that during surgery, as Sarah was still in pain, Tony had told his non-registered nurse to give her three doses of sodium pentothal, which was an excessive amount. He also didn't have the equipment needed in an emergency, such as a respirator and an EKG. In fact, he tried to stick a wire coat hanger down Sarah's throat when he realised she wasn't breathing. You know, normal doctor stuff. Her autopsy showed that Sarah Smith's cause of death was asphyxia due to inadequate ventilation during anaesthesia. Tony told Debbie that Sarah had taken over-the-counter herbal additives that she didn't tell anyone about, and that's why she died. He also claimed she had a defective heart and liver dysfunction, and that Sarah, Dan, the hospital and the DA were to blame for her death. The DA? Yeah, somehow the sure. DA. Yeah, I mean, like, at this point, sure, why not, you know? Tony had 15 pending lawsuits against him on June 8, 1998, when he pleaded guilty to criminally negligent homicide. He was sentenced to six months in jail, five years probation, 250 hours community service, and a fine of $2,500. Six months? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really not a lot, is it? No. Tony wasn't allowed to wear his snap-on toupee inside the big house, but he still had the metal screws protruding from his bald head. Cool. So, well, yeah, the inmates named him Frankenstein and figured that he was crazy. 
Unable to get painkillers, tranquilizers, and tequila inside, Tony started using heroin. Debbie and his kids visited him in jail and stood by him, as did his mistress Tammy, a blonde that he'd met while working out at Gold's Gym. After only serving four months, Tony was released. Four months. Wow. Believing that he'd changed, he and Debbie renewed their wedding vows. Tony bought a new Cadillac for Debbie, but he was the one who drove it. He also didn't find a job, as he felt that most jobs were beneath him, and he was spending $100 a day on heroin. Debbie found out about his relationship with Tammy and finally kicked him out. His mother was unimpressed and threatened to cut him off and take him out of her will if he didn't get back together with his wife. And she was supporting him and his heroin habits. So, you know, he was like, oh, no, mummy, no. Soon afterwards, Tony told Debbie that he'd gotten a death threat and that she and the kids were in danger. Graffiti appeared on their property that said, killer, killer, killer and die fucker. There was also a threatening phone call, all of which, by the way, Tony had done himself. Debbie got scared and let him move back in again after he assured her that he was done with Tammy. In May 1999, Debbie started to fall ill. She was vomiting and had severe stomach pains. She spent her days in bed, barely able to lift her head off the pillow. She could hardly walk, had slurred speech. Her legs, hands and feet were also numb and painful. She was in and out of hospital several times, and each time she went in, her condition improved, only to go downhill again after she was released. Tony kept telling her that she was fine, that she just had a little virus, and he acted like her friends and family were being hysterical for caring that she was in so much pain. Finally, doctors discovered arsenic in Debbie's system. In fact, there was so much of it that it's a miracle she lived. Um, when the lab sent the tests back, they went, when's the funeral? Because they were so sure that she would have died. Oh, really? Yep. Tests on Debbie's hair showed that the arsenic poisoning had happened after Tony had moved back in with her. Tony demanded that the doctors take out Debbie's gallbladder and claimed that that was the real problem. The doctors looked at him in shock. If she underwent surgery in her condition, there was no way that she'd survive. Anne Rule theorises in her book, Last Dance, Last Chance, that Tony wanted Debbie to die during surgery so he could prove that this sort of thing could happen to any doctor. Just eight months after his release from jail, the Erie DA started yet another investigation into Tony. Now, he pretended that he'd been tested and found to have arsenic in his system as well. He said that Dan Smith, um, Sarah Smith's widower husband, was poisoning them both for revenge – but Dan had actually moved a long way away by that point. It wasn't possible. It no. wasn't possible. So then Tony claimed that terrorists might have poisoned the water supply. Oh, terrorists. Which yeah. also isn't possible to have just, you know, them. Yeah, that's right. Um, uh, then he told doctors that Debbie was probably poisoning herself as she'd tried to kill herself before. And that was a lie. She really hadn't. Um, but Tony told his mummy that lie and she believed him. She even came to the hospital and yelled at Debbie, who at this point had been told it was unlikely that she'd ever walk again. She was all like, stop poisoning yourself. Ugh. <laughs> I know. Look, suicide by arsenic poisoning is unheard of as it takes so long and it hurts so much that nobody does it. Yeah, it's extremely painful, isn't it? Really, yeah. really painful. Eventually, Debbie realised that Tony was the only one who could have been poisoning her. 
She left him and took out a restraining order saying, you don't want to believe that your spouse could be capable of something like this. On April 27, 2000, Tony was indicted on charges of attempted murder in the second degree, assault in the first degree, and three counts of criminal possession of a controlled substance. Multiple witnesses came forward to say that Tony had spoken to them about having Debbie killed. After prosecutors caught him setting up a murder-for-hire plot against one of the witnesses, Tony pled guilty to the arsenic poisoning. In February 2001, he was sentenced to 15 years in state prison. Finally. Finally. At sentencing, Judge Mario J. Rossetti told Tony, your life has been a charade of misrepresentation, self-centred, manipulative disregard of the oaths and vows you've taken, disrespect for the law, and most important, disrespect for the value of human life. And also those bolts on your head look really fucking stupid. <laughs> no, I didn't say that bit. Oh. And look, that should be the end of it, but it isn't. Oh, really? There's more? Oh, there's always more. After his release from prison in 2013, Anthony Pignataro returned to West Seneca and despite the orders to never practice medicine again, advised himself as a renowned scientist and physician after he changed his name to Tony Hort. Well, he did invent electric socks. Yes, well, that's true. Um, Now, this caused the Erie County District Attorney to open up yet another criminal investigation into him. So Tony did what anyone in that situation would do. He moved to Florida. (laughs) Of course. I was going to say, move to the Gold Coast. (laughs) Yeah, well, pretty much. That's our our version of it. In February this year, Tony was advertising himself as an elder care specialist on eldercare.com, describing himself as a trustworthy senior caregiver uh, who has experience in administering medication. He, he left out to the point of death. <laughs> He's like the terminator of fake doctors. Like, he just won't stop coming. Yeah. Now, in spite of the tremendous odds and after extensive physical therapy, Debbie was able to walk, drive and take care of her children. She will always have a lot of pain in her arms and legs and she's lost her fine motor skills. But as she has said, I am here. I am alive. I can watch my beautiful children grow up to be fine adults. Thank God I am still here for them. Yeah, they're beautiful children. Benson and Hedges. <laughs> I don't think that no, was their No, Ralph names. and Lauren. But, um, man, so Debbie turned out to have some fight in her. Apparently really it did. was just, like, crazy that she was still alive. But he, he'd been poisoning her slowly and then he upped the dose and it, they think that she'd built up, like, um, a... Resistance. That's, yeah. Yeah, right. Tolerance. Tolerance. What an epic tale. Oh, I know. It was so long as well. But, um, you know, you read a book, you watch some stuff. It's just so much happened. It just kept happening. So, Barney. Yes, Tara. What time is it? It's true crime nerd time. Hooray. <laughs> true crime nerd time. True Crime Nerd Time is an opportunity for you, our listeners, to give us your recommendations for anything true crime related. It can be a book, movie, TV series, graphic novel, song, or just about anything that has scratched your true crime itch. Are you itchy, Tara? You can record your voice, just do it on your phone, we'll play it, or write it and we'll read it out. And we have one here from Jane Dickinson, and she's actually sent in a voice recording. Oh, excellent. But she did write in her email, Hi, Tara and Bunny. I hope you are well. 
I had a go at this for you and talked about a podcast that you and your listeners might find interesting. I love your show. I have a neurological disability and I spend a lot of time in bed, so podcasts like yours are a lifesaver. I also draw a lot in bed while listening to you guys. Oh, I hope she's drawn some pictures of sexy Barney. Well, I'd like to see those pictures. I would like to see them also. Yes, Jane, could you email those to us as well? (laughs) Uh, Any fan fiction that you choose to write would also be greatly accepted. That's right. Jane goes on to write, Warning, I do sound like a small child, but I am indeed 36 years old. Anyway, I hope it's useful. Well, it was. It is. Love you guys. I love Tara swearing and I love your show. All best wishes, Jane. Oh, I think I love Jane. All right, let's hear from Jane. Hello from the UK to Tara and Barney and Bloody Murder and all the listeners. Um, I love your podcast. I think it's brilliant and I especially love um, Tara's swearing and it's actually really good for you to swear and the most intelligent people in the world swear lots, Tara. So don't take any rubbish about that i wanted to tell you about a podcast called the root of evil which is really really good that i've been listening to for true crime nerd time um it's about um the black dahlia um elizabeth short murder that happened in 1947 but it's actually um told from the perspective of um, Yvette and Russia who are the great granddaughters of George Hodel who is one of the suspected murderers of Elizabeth Shorts and um, it's just really interesting it's all about their family and um the murder of Elizabeth Short is not the only disturbing thing about their family. Um, there's lots of other dark secrets. And um, they just tell it in a really interesting way. Um, and, um, yeah, I just think that uh, your audience would really enjoy it. So it's called The Root of Evil. It's an eight-part documentary series and uh yeah uh well, i think when they're in their when they're children they find out that um a killer is a possible killer is part of their family and it's really interesting so um i hope that your listeners might enjoy that as well and i just wanted to say how much i enjoy your podcast um but i've gone over the limit of um, two minutes, so I'm going to stop now. Okay, bye. Well, thank you for sending that in, Jane, and, and thank you for telling us a little bit about your story too. I was quite moved by it. Yeah, um, and um, I think your voice sounds lovely, and yeah. thank you so much. So that podcast is called The Root of Evil, and it's actually, uh, a, well, what they say about it is it's a companion piece to the TV show I Am The Night with Chris Pine. Yeah, but you probably don't have to watch the TV show to hear the podcast. Yeah, either or and. And what? And, and and shut up, Tara. And this yet, is my segment. That's right. And, and yet, here we are. And yet. That's your favourite thing today, isn't it? That is. 
If you want to submit a true crime nerd time, visit our website, bloodymurderpodcast.com, for instructions on how to do that. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. All right, Barney, time for you to pull your finger fucking out of your ass. Out of my Teflon asshole. Yeah, yeah, well, oh, just, it just falls out, just runs off. Nothing sticks to it, not even Velcro. All right, Barney, I believe it's time for you to get murdery. Tara, did you know in the pioneer days of California, the death penalty was doled out for various crimes besides murder? A man could dangle on a rope for rape, treason, claim jumping and horse fevery. The genuine jury system was not really in effect until the late 1840s, so the sentence was often carried out in the absence of a formal trial. In 1849 in Placerville, four Mexicans were accused of robbery, they were tried by a crowd of drunken miners. They attempted to defend themselves, but no interpreter could be found. The four men were found guilty and immediately hanged from the branches of a nearby tree. Oh, well, that's just mob justice. It really is. The death penalty was legitimised in legislation by California in 1851, and in the next 50 or so years, hundreds would swing. Mm, interesting choice of words there. Sounds like you mean wife swapping with the neighbours. Oh, no, these aren't orgies. These aren't putting car keys in the bowl. Oh, Swing on a rope. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that would be like contextually more apt. Yes. But did you know what they all had in common, Tara? Big moustaches. Well, yes, probably. <laughs> uh, for they were all men. Oh. It appears the ultimate sentence had a glass ceiling. Double standards of society. I know. The view at the time was, and I quote a renowned moralist of that era, The very thought that a woman should be hanged is morally repulsive and beyond the realm of serious contemplation. Yeah, yeah, women, they're just sweet and nice mm. and they pick flowers and bake cakes and, and rear beautiful rosy-cheeked babies. <laughs> it would take some years before a woman would perpetrate a crime so heinous so repulsive, so nasty that it would change society's mind. So, Tara, let's talk about her. I am interested to hear more. Emma Ledoux was born Emma Therese Cole on September 10, 1875 in the small town of Pine Grove in Amador County, California. Her parents were Thomas Jefferson Cole and Mary Ann Gardner. By the age of 16, Emma was married to Charles Barrett, 22, their marriage seemed a happy one at first, but it lacked one thing. Not enough sexy time. Well, no, it locked... 
<laughs> yes, and? Well, yes and no. It lacked longevity, as in it didn't last very long. Uh-huh. Like the sex. Yeah, right, well. There were rumours that meddling parents were the cause of their early marital ruin. After four shit, shit years of marriage. <laughs> well, you know what? If they, got, if they broke up, that's probably true. After four shit short years of marriage, <laughs> Charles left Emma on May 1st, 1895. Friends of both Emma and Charles later claimed that their separation may have been due to Emma having allegedly taken part in extramarital relations. Ah, a bit of swinging. That's right, and not on a rope. By early 1898, a divorce was granted. Later that year, Emma married her second husband, William Stanley Williams. <laughs> William Williams. Uh-huh. English-born William worked as a miner. Sadly... William died on June 20th, 1902, under suspicious circumstances. Ooh, suspicious like how? Did he have like a knife sticking out of his head? Well, not, not as obvious. Okay. According to Dr. C.L. Edmondson, who attended William in his final hours, poisoning by nitric acid was suspected, but it was later decided that Williams had died of natural causes. Heart failure. Okay. William was quite heavily insured, so the widow, Emma, scored about $5,000. Oh, that would have been a lot of money back then. Yeah, in 1902. Yeah, yeah. Shit, it'd be a lot of money to us right now, dude. Oh, God, it'd be a, it'd be a small fortune. I'd buy an island with that. I don't understand how money works. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot of yeah. bollers. William was remembered as a steady, reliable and straightforward man. Though prior to his death, it was said... He had occasion to take his wife to task for familiar associations with a Mr. McVicar, whose attentions gave him much concern. Ah, really? She was a little bit like, hey, baby. She's a bit flirty (laughs) with McVicar. Well, I mean, with a name like that, how many many McVickers does it take to lose your knickers? (laughs) That's what I want to know. Yeah, it really does sound like a start of a joke, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. McVickers lose your knickers. You're, you're, you're a fucking comic genius, aren't you? Clearly. 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 His suspicions were spot on, Tara. William's body hadn't even been in the ground three months before Emma married Canadian-born Albert Newton McVicker, mm. her third husband. The two wed on September 1st, 1902 in Cochise, Arizona. But this was to become a long-distance marriage for Emma moved back to California, travelling between her mother's ranch in Jackson and the Tenderloin District in San Francisco. At the time, that area was full of theatres, hotels, and was also known for its active nightlife. Oh, did Emma like the nightlife? Did she like to boogie? Emma claimed she managed to support herself by means of working as a seamstress, though no one had ever seen her make a dress. And by the help of her gentleman friends, it was suspected that she secretly dabbled in the oldest profession, Tara. Cabinet making. (laughs) No. But why buy the cow when you can get the milk for free? Because maybe you want to pat the cow and you want to feed it grass and hang out with it. Cows are cool. They're very big moo cow eyes. They're very tasty. Mm. By August 26th, 1905, Emma became a bigamist by marrying her fourth husband, Eugene Ladoux of Sutter Creek. Thirsty for milk, Eugene grew up with Emma in Amador County, his family's ranch being next door to Emma's stepfather's property. She never took her stepfather's name before she got married because it was Head and she didn't want to be known as Emma Head. Emma Head. (laughs) Emma Head Ledoux. Emma Ledoux Head. Judge Lampton, who carried out the ceremony, stated the ceremony itself was odd 
admitting that Eugene didn't act like the normal husband who was happy to wed his bride, and even going so far as to refuse kissing upon completion of the vows. That is quite unusual. Um, I got this really bad cold sore, and I don't want to... Yeah, maybe maybe he'd eaten a lot of garlic prior to the reception, and yeah. he didn't want it to smell that. True. That's, we we're speculating here, but it's <laughs> probably all true. We're factulating, Barney. Factulating. As fast as the ceremony came and went, so did the couple, exiting town as quickly as possible. Instead of returning to their hotel, the pair walked straight to the train station over an hour before the train to their honeymoon was due to depart. Well, if you can think of anything more sexy than waiting at a train station, I would like to hear about I it. I cannot. No. Now, Tara, Eugene Ledoux and Elle McVicker knew nothing about the other during this time. Oh, no, they la don't. <laughs> Emma would frequently spend time with both husbands for the next seven months without either one learning of the other's existence. Oh, well, that just sounds tiring. Well, this presented a problem, Tara. Yeah, she got tired. For seven months, she pondered how to solve this problem. And after months of scheming, this was her murderous solution. First... She asked Elle McVicker to join her in California. It was later speculated she framed it as a reconciliation between man and wife. He arrived in Northern California in early March 1906, and a couple partook in long walks on the beach paired with downing copious amounts of whiskey. Oh, well, that sounds good. Actually, that's sexier than the train station for sure. Oh, absolutely. Mm. After that, he and Emma went furniture shopping. (laughs) <laughs> now we're talking. Now we're talking. Hey. They picked out a few items Ooh. and asked a salesman to have them shipped to their new home. Then they made their way back to their hotel in Stockton, where Emma dosed McVicker with enough morphine to kill ten men. In the morning, with his body still in the room, she ran a series of errands. She returned to the furniture store to ask if the shipment could be changed. She wanted it sent to Eugene's house instead. She also purchased a large trunk, which she had sent to the hotel. After stuffing her dead husband in it, she paid a delivery boy to take it to the train station. Apparently she told the delivery boy it was full of books. Oh, right. That's why it was heavy. Yes. The trunk gone and the furniture sorted, Emma left the city, but not before buying herself a huge new fancy black flowery hat for $8. It's a fancy hat. Mm Mm-hmm. When the 4pm train to San Francisco pulled away from Stockton Station on March 24th, 1906, a large trunk was left behind on the platform. A check of the trunk showed no tags, so the station workers dragged the heavy case to the baggage room. By half past eight, they noticed a rank odour filling the room. The workers accused each other of cutting the cheese. (laughs) One worker commented he'd smelled a decomposing body before and it smelled just like the trunk. They went straight to the police. Well, after about 10 minutes of saying, should we open it? No, we shouldn't open it. Oh, come on, you open it. Oh, come on, you open it. (laughs) Sure, it's not your farts? No, I know what a a body smells like. That smells like a body. Well, yeah, but you've been farting all day. I can understand Uh, why it took 10 minutes. Let's just go to the police. Yeah, yeah, you know. An officer soon arrived with a chisel. He pried off the lock and popped the trunk open. The first thing he saw were two bare feet. Folded into the large piece of luggage, fully dressed except for his shoes and socks, was the body of Albert McVicker. 
Police tracked down the delivery boy who brought the trunk to the station. The boy told them he was hired by a female guest at the Hotel California. Oh, the Hotel California. You can check out any time you like as long as your dead husband is in a trunk. That's how the song goes, right? That's exactly right, mm-hmm. Tara. The proprietor of the hotel was brought in to identify the body. I would recognise that large, dark, droopy moustache anywhere, she probably said. What? What she definitely did say was that's Albert McVicker, who had checked into room 97 a few days prior with his wife. The wife was gone, but in the room was an item she'd left behind in her haste. Inside of Elise was a photograph of a woman. She was striking with her pale skin, dark hair and arched brows. Okay, so at the crime scene, she left behind a photograph of herself. <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. Well, I, don't, I haven't heard of that one before, i got to mm. say. It's original. I like it. Yeah. A description of Emma was telegraphed to every town in the Bay Area. On March 26, police found her in Antitop. That's a place. When they asked Mrs McVicker to come with them, she didn't care for that name and said... My name is Mrs. Ledoux. Oh, no, you don't. My name is Mrs. Ledoux. The police immediately arrested her. When word got out, the press dubbed her the trunk murderess. Oh, I'm glad they didn't put Black Widow in there. I'm so tired of that one. Yeah. Cool as an ice-cold cucumber from the North Pole, <laughs> Emma admitted to police she'd been present during the murder of her husband. But the real killer was an acquaintance named Joe Miller, who poisoned McVilla with carbolic acid in order to steal the remainder of Emma's $5,000 fortune. Panicked by the death of her husband, and under threat of death, Emma said she agreed to help Joe cover up the crime. She then asked the detectives if they liked her new hat. The detectives did not, and thought the question (laughs) unusual. (laughs) They then put out a half-hearted APB for Joe Miller, but they were dubious he even existed. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of guys called that, but not ones that killed her husband. At the morgue, Albert McVicker's brother, J.E. McVicker, had arrived from Cripple Creek, Colorado, to identify the body. During an interview with the press, he was quoted saying, Yes, that is my brother, Albert. This will almost kill our poor old mother. She is now nearly 70 years of age, and I feel greatly the results of the shock upon her. He also went on to say, Somehow I thought something was the matter with Al. Up to two years ago, we kept up a fairly regular correspondence, and he stopped writing. Albert was a first-rate man, unless he went downhill rapidly in the last few years. What kind of woman is this alleged wife? She must be a regular tigress. (laughs) During the autopsy of McVicker's body, doctors found blows to his head which caused a congestion of the inner lining of the skull and that he had an enormous amount of morphine in his system. But neither of these things killed him, Tara. No. Al McVicker was alive when he was put in that trunk, they stated, albeit barely, and he had died of asphyxiation. Oh, well, that could have happened from the morphine, though, because he could have stopped breathing because of being dosed so hard. That's right. We'll get more to that later, actually. (laughs) uh, You're very perceptive, Tara. Well, you know, what can I say? Murder, kind of my thing. The trial of Emma Ledoux became one of the biggest news stories of the decade, and the public ate it up. Yum, yum. (laughs) During the trial, defence attorney Charles H. Fairall tried to convince the jury of Emma's innocence repeatedly. Fairall believed that the jury and Judge Nutter were biased. In fact, it was remarked that the jury had been chosen from a specific area in Stockton and were neighbours of Sheriff Sibley, who told anyone who would listen that she was as guilty as hell. 
This insinuation was used by the defence to claim that the jury was tainted all along. Oh, you don't want a tainted jury. Oh, no. Mm -hmm. Having made their own judgments against Emma Ledoux before learning the facts of the case. The prosecution's star witness, Professor Ray Ravione Rogers, testified that McVicker had 10 times the amount of morphine in his system to kill a man his size. He also stated that McVicker had not died prior to being placed in the case, but in fact that he died while in the trunk, but not by suffocation. Oh, how did he figure that out? Well... Defence Attorney Farrell, having the opportunity to cross-examine the witness, questioned how he knew that McVicker did not suffocate while in the trunk. Rogers then explained to the jury that earlier that morning, he had the district attorney lock him in the very same trunk. <laughs> oh, nice. And laid in the very same position McVicker had been found in. He lay in the trunk, locked inside for almost 40 minutes without suffocating. Right. I wonder how comfy that was with your feet up in the air. Well, he said it was a bit uncomfortable, but I conversed with the DA. We had a great conversation. Nice. During the trial, Emma's mother collapsed, fainting in the courtroom, and had to be carried out. Emma began crying over her mother, and smelling salts had to be administered to her in order to bring her to her senses so the trial again could proceed. She was soon herself again, however, media reported. The extraordinary calm of the woman leads to the suspicion that she is not sane. Oh, great. So she's insane because she's calm. What's the bet if she'd been agitated? She would have been insane because of that too, right? Yeah, that's right. Well, I mean, ladies couldn't possibly do something as crude as to murder somebody, so that must be insane. Um, And look at the size of her hat. I know. She's not baking right now. She's not patting kittens and braiding flowers into her pretty hair. Insanity, I swear. Now, Tara, I must tell you, Emma's mother married as frequently as her daughter and in every case outlived her husband's, just as Emma did. Could this have been a clutter of black widows? Clutter, huh? Yes, that's the collective noun for spiders. I looked it up. Well, yeah, I guess they they do kind of clutter the place up a little. Yeah, and they go, you know, they go... Oh, they clutter when they, when, away on oh, their cluttery legs. My kitten didn't like it when I did that. No. I woke him up. Anyway, back to the trial. The defence wanted the jury to believe that McVicker was just a morphine addict who overdosed and that it wasn't really Emma's fault. They also argued McVicker had forced Emma into a life of prostitution and drugs. The prosecution countered that narrative with another theory. Emma needed to get rid of her husband after marrying Eugene Ledoux. Well, doing it beforehand might have been a better idea. Like, have she heard of, like, divorce? She got divorced before. Couldn't she do it again? Yeah, that's right. They entered a series of Emma's letters into evidence. They were full of endearing terms and declarations of undying love for Eugene. Though media reported that Eugene, who was illiterate, had his 19-year-old brother read them to him. Ah, getting your kid brother to read you sexy letters. Are you as turned on as I am right now? (laughs) Oh, even more so. (laughs) The defence, running out of ideas, declared, She didn't love Eugene. She could not love that pop-eyed woodchopper who could neither read nor write and was as deaf as a post. Women don't love men like that. Oh, my, that's a little bit harsh on Eugene. What did he do? I know, it's a serious burn, isn't it? Yeah. I hope that, you know, he didn't hear that. I guess it was written down, he'd never know. (laughs) Unless his little brother read it to him. Oh, I bet he would too. It took six hours of deliberations before the jury convicted Emma of the murder of McVicker in the first degree. She would be the first woman sentenced in a court of law to be executed in the state of California. Local media reports stated, Except for the slightly crimson face and throbbing bosom she displayed no emotion, 
and the curious spectators who gathered to see her break down at the critical moment went away declaring, Miss Ledoux is a game, little woman. (laughs) Oh, God damn it. (sighs) But Tara, and it's a big but. Oh, I like those and I cannot lie. That sentence was never carried out. Instead, she remained in the Stockton jail till 1909 while her attorney received a stay of execution for Emma upon his appeal for a new trial. And they got one. Yeah, but the little woman couldn't possibly. Ah, she's a little game. But during the years that Emma was jailed, she had become very ill. It was even published in many papers that they believed she was dying from consumption. Believing that she was going to die and she could not physically or mentally handle the stress of another trial, Emma wrote a letter to her attorney advising him to notify the courts that she wished to plead guilty. Emma was sentenced to life imprisonment in San Quentin. During her stay in the clink, like many prisoners, Emma turned to religion and became a member of the St Mary's Church. With all that time in her hands, Emma entered newspaper contests and won $92 from a local music store. Unfortunately, it was only good towards the purchase of a grand piano. Well, that's not going to fit in her cell, is it? No. After 10 long years, Emma was paroled in 1920, but the $92 off a new piano had long expired. <laughs> it's, it's all about the little details, isn't it? Yeah, that's what I love about, you know, yeah, yeah. these cases. That's it's a, bring, the small stuff. It brings it to life, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's, it's all about the snap-on toupees and... off a grand piano. Yeah, and that massive hat she bought. Oh, yeah. Look on our Facebook page for pictures of Emma Ledoux. Yeah, or our Instagram. There will be pictures of this hat. Yeah, yeah. She actually had her mugshot taken with the hat. She insisted. Yeah. I I reckon she bought it for the mugshot. Well, it's an $8 hat. That's a a pretty fancy hat. If I'm going to go down, I'm going to go down in a gigantic hat. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that how the old saying goes? You know what Laszlo's full name is? Laszlo Gigantic Hat. Laszlo, eater of souls, bullshitter of dinner times, destroyer of hats. He likes to eat hats and bullshit about his dinner time. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Upon her release, Emma being Emma did Emma things. Makes sense. Meaning violating the terms of her parole on more than one occasion. She had been staying with her sister in Los Angeles. It was reported that she had been contributing to the delinquency of minors by providing alcohol to underage men and being drunk in public. Oh, they like it when you do that. (laughs) So I've heard. Her sister and brother-in-law also testified that she had been associating with men in a less than respectable manner, coming home inebriated on numerous occasions and carrying on a rather inappropriate relationship with their 19-year-old son, the 45-year-old Emma's nephew, yeah. Her parole was revoked and she went right back to prison. About three years later, she was paroled again in March of 1924. So that consumption cleared up, huh? Yeah, she recovered. Hmm. Yeah. Like you can get a cream for it. <laughs> yeah, she just took some morphine, but not too much. Oh, no. This was around the time that she met and married Fred Crackbon, who was said to be a wealthy businessman from Napa. Unfortunately for Emma, Crackbon died from a severe stroke in 1929, leaving Emma a widow once more. Oh, well, it probably saved her some time and energy of killing him. It wasn't long before Emma resorted back to her unusual schemes of living a less than respectable life. She even started a Lonely Hearts dating service catering to forlorn men. 
Emma pretended to connect these men with female pen pals, although she was the only one writing to all of them. Oh! She successfully swindled money out of the lonesome, love-starved men until her parole officer finally cracked down on her and put her back in prison on April 21st, 1931. What a diabolical little woman. Well, the San Francisco Chronicle marvelled. She is a woman of almost 58 who had all the lure and fascination of a girl of 18. Oh, who has ever heard of such a thing? Oh. Eventually, the state moved her from San Quentin to the women's prison facility where she stayed for the remainder of her life in Chihachapi, California. On July 6, 1941, Emma Cole Head Barrett Wims McVicker Ledoux Crackbond finally died at the age of 69 from ovarian cancer. She was buried in an unmarked grave in the Union Cemetery in Bakersfield. That's the end. Wow, she was a bit of a wild woman, wasn't she? She was, she was a wild card. So this, that was a suggestion from Laurie, who actually lives in Stockton. Uh-uh. And she wrote in her email, Tara and Barney, I have a fantastic little story from my town of Stockton, California. It is a story from the early 1900s filled with greed, stupidity, a black widow, and a smelly trunk. What's not to like? <laughs> Said smelly trunk is on display at the gallery in town. I'll be there in March for a youth art show as my son has a photo in the show. Oh, cool. I'd be happy to provide pictures of small children with heavily pixelated faces admiring the trunk. <laughs> That sounds like a deal. Shoot well, them through. Deal, Laurie. Thanks. <laughs> Shoot them through. Nice one. Wow. i got to get myself a gigantic hat and get murdery. No, just the hat. Well, just the already, hat on its own. Well, you've already got a stinky trunk. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's true. Got a lot of junk in my stinky trunk. <laughs> now, um, before we, we get on to Aussie As, um, let's do some listener feedback. Yeah, let's do that. Lauren Margot posted, probably the only thing worse than getting murdered would be getting murdered and then a true crime podcast says, we've got a really freaking awesome one for you this week, before doing an entire episode about you getting murdered. I don't know, Lauren. I'm into it. Yeah, I'm into it. Stephen Martin posted an article with the headline, Attention Meth Users. If you have recently purchased meth from Tennessee, Florida, or the southeast Missouri area, it could be contaminated with the Zika virus please contact Wayne County Sheriff's Department so they can conduct a free screening on your meth and make sure it's not contaminated. Be sure to bring all of your meth with you so it can all be tested. <laughs> Sneaky, aren't ah, they? Sounds legit. Devon Ryan gave us a bit of a ridiculous history lesson. Clement Vallandingham was a lawyer who, while trying to demonstrate how the victim might have accidentally shot himself, shot himself and died. He then won the case. Well, uh. he was very convincing. The hammer of justice can be quite painful. Yeah, deadly. And deadly. Jonathan Gulliver shared an insight. When Hannibal Lecter famously said, I ate his liver with some father beans in a nice county. He was saying more than you might think. The antidepressant MAOI prohibits the consumption of liver, fava beans and red wine. He was slyly revealing that he was not taking his medication. Hmm. Well... I hope that's true because I didn't fact check it. <laughs> Jonathan, you might have just got us a beauty. Yeah, we'll yeah, see. yeah, we'll see. <laughs> hey, I've got two questions for you. What is Aussie As and tell me one? Aussie As are tales of criminal stupidity with a quintessentially Australian flavour. I'd like to thank Sarah Smithson Compton for bringing this one to my attention. Today I'm going to be talking about an unlucky bloke from Perth who took to Reddit with a post titled, Who do you call when you're stuck? His post said, well, I wanted a nice shiny coffee bar countertop, so I cut and sanded and 
stained it all nice and I applied a coat of epoxy resin. It's supposed to set hard in 24 hours. So tonight after having a shower, I came to check it and I wrapped my fingers on it and it sounded like hard plastic, so I thought it was set. I just happened to sit down on it while I was reading the instructions that came with the epoxy, wondering if I should give it another coat. Hang on, so he got out of the shower and he's naked. Yeah, and he sat on it. When I was read when I was done reading the instructions, I went to stand up and I couldn't. So I'm kind of sitting here with a slab of jarra attached to my butt cheeks, watching Battlestar Galactica and waiting for the non-emergency number to return my call. More than 300 Redditors started suggesting ways to help him, and when one wrote, What a pickle, the man replied, Oh my God, yes! He added, One of the release agents Google mentioned was vinegar. I can't get to the acetone or the thinners in the garage because I won't fit through the doorway, but I do have a jar of pickles in the cupboard, and I could get them, eat the pickles, and use the vinegar to weaken the surly bonds of the resin. This is now plan A. He could just throw the pickles on the ground. He doesn't have to eat them. I know. Them. I like that he's like, well, I can't use the pickle juice till I eat all the pickles. Well, I, I like his um, work ethic. Yeah. No, i got to eat all those pickles before I can even think about putting the juice on my butt. He posted an update an hour later saying that the juice was working and that he managed to get a hold of a jigsaw that he used to cut down the bar so he could get to the chemicals in his garage. I thought you were going to say he managed to find a jigsaw and pass the time by putting a hot air balloon together. Right, yeah. (laughs) And watching Battlestar Galactica, both versions. The man then said, I was also able to get to the acetone and the terps and use these to accelerate the fantastic work my pickle juice has been championing. Still watching Battlestar Galactica while I dissolve my ass load of resin, and it's going great. The next morning, he said he was feeling oh, a little tenderness, but um, not much pain. Going on to say, if anything, my butt feels thoroughly exfoliated. Pickle juice. Is there anything it can't do? Well, that's true. That's, yeah. a good, that's a good story with a happy ending. Yeah. I wonder if he left his, his butt impression on his counter, his kitchen countertop. Well, the thing is that he had to, like, chop up the countertop to get it well, get into the... Well, that's true. So I think that whole counter thing's, like, not, not going to happen. He could maybe make it a nice little coffee table with his butt print on it. Oh, lovely. And sell it on eBay. Yeah, well, he is famous now. Kind of. Um, yeah, no one actually knows his name. Right. I'm going to call him Gav. Gavin? Yeah, Gav. Gav. Good name. Thanks for listening and thanks to our patrons. If you would like to support us, visit our website or if you just want to buy us a drink because we're thirsty, there's a PayPal donate button there too. And you know who bought the drinks this week? Who? Jessica Robinson. Thank you. Thank you you so much. I'm just like living for the moment when we drink them. Um, I'd also like to thank our Facebook moderator team and um, give a special shout out to Lorraine. I'm sorry, honey. Lorraine's it this week. Also, please be nice to our moderators. I mean, it, they're nice. It's not hard. I've been Barney Black. And I've been Tara Saraban. And this is Bloody Murder. Please don't forget to review us on iTunes. And, of course, rate and subscribe. It really helps us. You can follow us um, on our Facebook page or join our group. Um, we're also on Twitter at Bloody Murder Pod and Instagram at Bloody underscore Murder underscore Podcast. Check out our website, Bloody Murder Podcast, for news, galleries, more episodes and merchandise, including new duffel bags. Oh, yeah, yeah. They look yeah, cool. Yeah, it can fit lots of um, cash and guns in them. Yep. few heads. few heads, maybe. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back soon. Goodbye and adios. And keep kicking against the pricks. So I'm going to drink some gin.
And it's going to be a strong one. Who dares jeans? And I'm trying not to stop burping on the mics. Uh, because just because I said I'm going to drink gin doesn't mean I have already body. Why are you burping? Why are you get the hiccups soon? This little cat was so good. He sat right next to me for the whole one. Yeah, I didn't hear you scream once, so no. he mustn't have attacked you. No, he didn't. He's a good boy. on my head since 1997. Yeah. Now explain to me what bumming is in relation to your uh, hound Poppy. Well, Poppy likes to, like, you know, plant her bottom on you. She likes to bum you just to show that she's, like, you know, owning you when she's being cheeky and trying to lick your face. Oh, so she'll just back into you? Yeah, yeah, she'll bum you. I know. I said it in front of our British friend Chris and he was like, well, he didn't say call blimey, but he was like, oh, that means something else where I'm from. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess it does, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. No, she wasn't trying to do what Chris meant. She just wants to put her bottom on you just as a a little power play that she has. Yeah, Laszlo likes to put his bottom on my top of my head when I'm sleeping. We all do that, Barney. Really? Well, you're asleep. You don't know. Yeah. And then if we if you if we see that you're waking up a bit, we just quickly put the cat on you instead. <laughs> well, I take comfort in that. Yeah, well, you should. I do. It's lovely. Yeah, Barney Bottomhead. That's what we call you. Oh, lovely. Yeah, it's nice. It was, I thought it was Barney Two Cakes because mm. I can have my cake and eat it because I have two cakes. Barney Two Cakes. That's yeah, right. he's a happy guy. Yeah. Because yeah. I felt snarky about it. Felt snarky about it. Snarky Tara. That's what they call you. Yeah, yeah. They call me a lot of things. Uh. So what's the word, big bird? Well, sexy Barney, I hear that you're getting fan mail now. Well, I had one review. Yeah, hey baby. Yeah, I like my Michael Caine too. Yeah, but they think sexy Barney might be the best Barney. I I prefer him than myself, actually, yes. (laughs) We all do, Barney. (laughs) Yeah, forever alone though, I think sexy Barney is. Really? Yeah, I, I don't know. He just, I don't think he'd do well. <laughs> you know what? You should actually just be him for a whole week and see how it goes. Your I, life might be better. I think my girlfriend would break up with me. Well, yeah. Well, you'd be single. Yeah. <laughs> That's for sure. My children would abandon me. They'd just walk to the nearest orphanage and say, <laughs> we'd, we'd like to be admitted. We, yes. Yeah, yeah. Look, we do have a father, but we just, we're sick of his shit. Yeah. We're sick of him saying, hey, baby, to we, us. We wish to be emancipated. Yes. <laughs> we saw a motorcycle with a sidecar the other day Oh, was there a dog in the sidecar? There wasn't There was Aww. not a dog in the sidecar But I, I, my kids were just fascinated by it Because they, they say they'd never seen one in real life Oh, really? Just on Wallace and Gromit? Just on, they, that's what they said, <laughs> Wallace and Gromit Yeah, and the dog wears like um, Goggles Goggles and then its ears blow in the wind That's right That's, how, that's why you get a sidecar well, that's right. And I said, I've seen probably 20 sidecars in my life, and a lot of them do have dogs in them. That's the with whole point. Wearing goggles. Have you seen sidecars with dogs in them wearing goggles? I have. I don't think I've actually seen it in real life. I think just in my dreams. <sighs> in my fantasies. Right. Is that what you dream about? Yep. That's what's in sidecars. the wank bank. Yeah, you don't see sidecars that often these days. Yeah, you don't. You do not. More's the pity. Maybe you could get one and put your cat in it. <laughs> but put your cat in a dog outfit. 
right. then put it in the sidecar. Which will attach to my bicycle. Yeah. My velocipede. <laughs> my velocipede with a sidecar. Yeah, your penny farthing. Ah, oh, right. Well, I do have the moustache for it. Mm-hmm. You've got mm-hmm. a bit of beard going yeah. there too, Santa. Well, you know, it's it's not a style decision. It's just me being lazy. <laughs> I feel that way about a lot of things to do with yeah, your Yeah, I'm just sick and shaving. Pish-tosh. Pish-tosh? Pish-tosh. What's that? It means humbug. Oh, well, humbug, you should have just said so. <laughs> well, I wanted to say pish-tosh. So it's sort of like, bah, fuck that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Seebs. Seebs, ah, when you can't be fucked saying CBF. Seebs, <laughs> mate. Lazy. I like it. Yeah, it's we're lazy because like we don't want flies to get in our mouths, so we hardly ever open them when we talk. We're just mostly talking. No, to, to talk with yeah, that's how you know. A mouthful of rocks. All right, so how am I going to set womanhood in Australia back 10,000 years by talking today? Oh, there you go. Probably just did it. You know, uh, Mo had uh, some some women speakers at his uh, school for International Women's Day last week. Mm-hmm. I asked him about it and he said, oh, you know, it's kind of boring. I said, who were the speakers? And he goes, oh, I don't remember. And then I, I look on the school newsletter. They had Clem Ford there. Oh, what? She's the opposite of boring. I know. She's a superstar. <clears throat> a yeah. celebrity. Well, you know, I mean, to adults because she calls out all the trolls and the haters and I, I they like don't know her. how to deal with it. I think she does some good work. She does some great work. Yeah. That's what I told him. And he went, eh. And he made him write in his, his, his woman's, woman's Day notebook. Clementine Ford is awesome a hundred times. I should have. <laughs> <laughs> in 1906 in Stockton, California, Emma Ladue was a big, was a bigamous pickle. <gasps> oh, oh, I need her juice for later in the Aussie Az. <laughs> Hi, I'm Sexy Barney. Hey, baby, I'm Barney Black. <laughs> and I Russian Tara. In July 1978, Debbie, nah, she didn't. She didn't? No, what, she, what, did, no? she did not. Did she do Dallas? She no. did not. No, no. no. Debbie wouldn't have done that. Not this, this Debbie. This is a different You've Debbie. You've got the wrong Debbie. Yeah. My, my neighbour's named Debbie and she's lovely. Yeah. Well, she's not a Debbie though. She's a, she's a Deborah. She's a Deb. She's a Deb. She is lovely. Like I mashed love potato. Mm, have you ever had that powdered stuff? I haven't. Uh, Trey Trey likes it. Really? So for your girlfriend's birthday, did you just buy her a packet of powdered mashed potato? Hey, baby. <laughs> That's a really frantic, sexy party. Hey, baby. <laughs> I was kind of trying to get it out before I laughed. Right, so sexy Barney's driving in his car and someone pulls in front of him. Hey, hey baby. baby. <laughs> hey, baby, get out of my way. Oh, he got a little bit southern there. <laughs> hey, baby. Tony was a student at L- L- fucking Can't Read No More. Can't read no That's an more. unusual name for a, a, a university. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean... Like, can't, it, can't read no more. <laughs> <laughs> That's where I went. Oh, yeah. Um, frozen vodka push-up bras. Actually, that's my invention. TM, TM. Trademark. <laughs> <laughs> right. What about a podcast for the deaf? Yeah, yeah. How, would that, how would that work? Well, you see, Tara, it comes on a roll like a toilet paper and it's Braille and you just read it with your fingers. So you want people who are deaf to read toilet roll podcasts now? Yes, that is actually a great idea. Yeah, Let's, there um, you go. Trademark that one as well. Yes. In their thermal Did I used to be able to talk and I just can't now? Or have I never been able to talk? I don't remember you being able mm. to talk. Must be a false memory. False memory must have a... <laughs> 
Oh, was that a midnight oil reference? <laughs> that was great. I, I want more of those. You know, like, that can't go in the main podcast, though, because only, like, 20% of our listeners will get it. Fucking dog. Yeah, I don't I like it. I thought my nose was whistling. You thought that the dog barking, a dog barking, not my dog, was your nose whistling. Yeah, sometimes I'm lying in bed and I'm trying to go to sleep and I'm going, what's that fucking irritating noise? It's going, eh, eh, and then I realise <laughs> it's, my, it's my breathing. And, and so, so you stop breathing and, and then you're so, fine. Well, no, I can't do that. I'd die. I what? know. So I try and adjust my nose to try and get rid of the squeaking and then it just makes a louder sound or a different sound. Have you thought about not putting mice in your nose? Well, who would eat the cheese? <laughs> <laughs> nose cheese, huh? Teflon asshole nose cheese. That's the name of my fourth album. Really? Really? You know, I'm glad you got a red Lamborghini instead of a yellow one because yellow is very shouty as a colour. And that... Oh, red's got all the subtlety. Yeah, you know, you know, you know that I don't like yellow cars. Oh, yeah, I think you got that from me. I've always hated yellow cars. I've, oh, I, I hate yellow cars. And I was telling my kids this, and Dexter said, "Well, you know, you could write a letter to the the yellow car designers, so they don't make any more cars." Oh no, I don't think they want them to be yellow either. It's something that happens when they get painted. Obviously, no, no. no he thinks there are particular yellow car designers. There are there. designers that only design yellow cars. Yeah, I said well, the thing is, people, if people stop buying yellow cars, they'll then they'll stop yeah, making them. Supply and demand. So if you have a yellow car, get rid of it, junk it, don't sell it to someone else. Just no, make no. It, make it into a little cube. Yeah, take the loss. Put it in a landfill and buy yourself a proper coloured car. Mm, by the way, taxis can be yellow. That's okay. No, no, no. Well, I guess so. You know, your, your oldest son and I, whenever we see yellow cars, we take photos of them and text them to each other just to annoy each other. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember you doing that. Uh. Yeah, it's still going. <laughs> <laughs> I get one of those clip-on hair things. <laughs> yeah, and a jet ski, and you could ride the jet ski with your clip-on hair, and your hair would just blow in the breeze, and it would never, like, fall off in the water and look stupid and make all the bolts in your head stand up bald and alone. Right. You get struck by lightning more, though. It's a small price to pay. It really is. Your life. Yeah. <laughs> For looking cool. Yeah, looking cool's where it's at, man. That's the <laughs> yeah. main priority. Oh, yeah, Ooh. daddy. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Look at his hair blow. Oh, hey, baby. You want to see my hair? <laughs> Watch my hair. I'm on this jet ski. Hey, baby. <laughs> God. Oh, uh, we should just do that the whole time. William was remembered as a steady, reliable, and straightforward man. That's how they remember me, I think. Um, <laughs> no, no, kind no, of the opposite no, of that. No. A, a farty, frugal, and deluded man. <laughs> <laughs> oh snap! Shots fired. Come oh, at me, Barney. Oh man, your cannonballs are going over my bow. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd like them back, please. The two wed on September 1st, 1902 in Cochise, Arizona. I can't say Arizona. <laughs> Cochise I'm all right with, though. <laughs> Cochise. We're going to have to look up every single word now, aren't we? Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> T-H-E? What word is that? Tahe. Tahe. <laughs> oh, it's Emma Do, not Emma no, that's your joke. <laughs> so it was and I said it wrong. Yeah, I said it wrong anyway. <laughs> He's only Ralph Wiggum did. Uh, <laughs> I like it when you do that. It's cute. I'll shut up. Can we cute? Fine. 
Oh, don't call me cute. What abuse me all you like, but don't call me cute. That's uh, what you. That's pretty much where you come from, isn't it? Yeah, well, I don't know. It made me feel weird. Oh, I don't like make you feel funny in your tummy. <laughs> oh right, this is getting much better, isn't it? In your little cute tummy. Oh god, I hate you so much. Yeah, right now. good. Bring it. Instead of returning to their hotel, the pair walked straight to the train station. Over an hour before the train to their honeymoon was due to depart. Mm. That was the. the te- <laughs> Never read a sentence before, have no, you? No, I don't. English. <laughs> it's like you're just making the sounds and hoping they're words. <laughs> <laughs> the trunk gone and the furniture stores. <sighs> it's all right. No, it's not. Well, what? What? what you, okay, get more frustrated. Ah, <laughs> ah. Yeah, all right. I mean, go for it. Whatever ah, works for you. Ah, I feel much better. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh, the boy's gone to sleep. Well, you know, I didn't want to say anything, but I feel the same way. Oh, it's, it's, it's all this podcasting speak. Police tracked down the delivery boy who'd brought the truck. Well, don't ask me. Apparently, I it's don't not fucking a truck. know. It's a fucking trunk. <laughs> it's not a truck. What does it say truck here? Who wrote this shit? <laughs> who edited it? <laughs> Police tracked down the delivery boy who brought the truck. Tra- tra- oh, fuck. <laughs> I'm gonna- fuck a duck in your stupid truck. On March 26th. Police found her in Antitoc. What? Who's Antitoc? That's a town. Oh, in Antitoc. Yeah. I'm not sure that's what, that's what happened from your mouth. The call. <laughs> <laughs> it, it just sounds like someone who doesn't like clocks. Oh, I hate them. Yeah. Uh, Mo and I were discussing whether we should change time to metric time just to make things easier. So there's 100 seconds in a minute. Seconds would have to go a little faster. One, two, three, four, five, six, mm-hmm. seven, eight, nine, ten. Go a little faster. And then you'd have a hundred minutes would make an hour. Yeah. Right. And a hundred hours would make a day. I don't know that you guys have the power over time that you think you do. Now, the only way this would work out, because it'd fuck a lot of shit up. Oh, yeah. Is to move the planet further away from the sun. Oh, so you're going to do that? Though we would have an extra three days in the week. We could have two extra weekend days and one extra work day. I'm glad that you've thought this through. It sounds like a brilliant idea. Metric and time. how could it possibly go wrong? Metric time. It's a, it's a winner. TM. TM. <laughs> they also argued Mick Vicker had forced Emma into a life. <clears throat> <laughs> Did you just reach puberty, love? Oh, it just happened. Oh, finally, you're a man. You're going to get hair in some strange places. Really? Mm, yeah, well, probably your tongue. I don't think it's the only spot left. Shut up. <laughs> Shut up, that's why. They also... <clears throat> nah, it's puberty. Yeah, that's, that's uh, it now. That's, that's it. it forever. Uh, You're done, son. Emma needed to get rid of her husband after marrying... Marrying... <laughs> Ever since you hit puberty, you've been weird. <laughs> <laughs> Jonathan Gulliver shared an in, shared as insight. I'll just fucking... Can you figure it out? Can no, you figure it's it been, out? Uh, figure uh, it out! Uh, 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 you got something in your Barney brain, don't you? Apart from just thoughts about ham rolls and sausage rolls. I like sausages. <laughs> <laughs> that's all that's in there, isn't it? I uh, like sausages. Yeah, yeah. You got this one, champ. Come on. Oh, sorry. I was thinking about tomorrow's breakfast. Mmm, tomorrow breakfast. Tomorrow breakfast never comes, Barney. Read the bloody thing. <laughs> oh, even I don't like me when I sound like that. Yeah, business Tara just gave me an ass reaming. <laughs> That's what she does. She likes to peg. 